I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ho, ho, ho. Fuck the po. I mean, Merry Chris. Hi. I liked where that was going. I liked where that was going. I, I didn't hate it. It's the holidays. Yeah. How how uh, I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards, normally a podcast about the worst people in all of history, but not today because today is the Christmas episode. And with me to help present our Christmas episode is my erstwhile producer, Sophie Lichterman. Hi. Give him give him a bow, Sophie. No. <laughs> okay. Well, Sophie didn't want to bow to you. That's that's kind of mean. You can, uh, you, and can bow, you can bow to me, Robert. The inestimable Jamie Loftus. Woo! Hi. How how you how, how how's how's everybody doing this holiday season? Everyone feeling Yule and Tide? I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I've been wa- I've been consuming a lot of Christmas content. Oh, good. I uh, Santa University's good to go. I feel you know I feel so as good exciting. as I possibly could in this moment. I am. But I'm sure I that won't last. <laughs> no, no, of course not. I mean, maybe a little. We got a festive okay. story this year, but um, okay. yeah, Christmas is 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 a is a wonderful season. I've been doing a whole lot of Christmas content. I did my yearly viewing of White Christmas, which was the okay. first movie filmed in color. It predates Alaska being a state, um, <laughs> and it has very subtle racism, uh, which is always a hoot. Uh, you know, subtle. it is uh, the the fact that it, it was even subtle is uh, is a surprise. Yeah, I didn't notice it. I watched it every year as a kid with my family, and I didn't notice until I was an adult that like, oh, the only black characters in the entire movie are like working behind the bar on a train and they don't talk. Um, that tracks. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. What year did it come out in? Like fifty two. Like it. Uh, it is or fifty four. Mm. Maybe it's like mm. you know. 
it's back in the day and it's got old bingo uh it's it's old, it's i watched you robert you should watch i would love your takes on the new princess switch movie what i think you <laughs> like, have some like when you say you switch are we talking like switch or are we talking like so here's know, the rundown it's, so so there's a princess <laughs> not not the that would be a really good sequel is the princess switch uh but the, but these are just simply princesses who switch with each other um and they're all okay, played two by princesses Vanessa. who take each other's jobs yes they it's kind of okay. like the holiday that nancy myers movie there's nothing kinky about it although i think that there's room in the franchise for that to change uh okay. the, and and all of the princesses are played by vanessa hudgens we're up to three vanessa hudgens this is. year he doesn't know wait i know that. i know who vanessa hudgens is but she who plays she? so she's so she's she's oh like meet the clumpsing a princess movie yeah, who, who, yeah wait, she's wait, wait, literally wait, wait. like this is her nutty you professor you know who vanessa hudgens is who what does your yeah she's an actress she does what? stuff she, wow i don't know movies. wow doesn't she do some disney shit she did you kind of Robert, you're this is kind the of in the ballpark yeah, like I couldn't pick her face out, but like I've seen Vanessa Hudgens in things. It's familiar. Like she's she's <sighs> as real a human being to me as I don't know. Um, uh, 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 I've forgotten all of the names of every other person who's ever been in movies. Um, That's fair. She's as real as Bingo, at least, if not more. No, no, no she one's famously as real as Bingo. Early in quarantine, she went live on Instagram and said she didn't care. Uh, she said that, you know, in a pandemic, people are going to die and we should just accept that. She's a really hardened person. She sounds like a real um, hero. You know, speaking of hardened a, people who are heroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the person we're talking about today, every Christmas season, every Yuletide, mm-hmm. we uh, we we switch around, you know, the the premise of this show and go from talking about the worst people in all of history to talking about one of the best people in all of history. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this is this is I think a pretty beloved tradition. We're on year three of it now, and uh, you know, our first pick was someone who is I think is as pure a human being as ever existed, Raoul Wallenberg, who. Really, you, you can't get any better than Raul. Um, sure. And, you know, the next year we did a very flawed man who nevertheless rose to uh, the occasion of history uh, and became a glorious beacon of moral courage, Mr. John Brown. Um, solid guy, solid hero. And this year we're doing yet another kind of different sort of hero. Uh, this guy's a messy figure. He had a dark side, and he's a man who in the end failed in his ultimate goals. But he's someone I find inspiring nevertheless. And after a messy year of darkness and failure, um, I think that he's uh, the right person to talk about today. Because today okay. we're chatting about well, Nestor Machno. Okay. As you, have, you, you know, Nestor? I have no fucking clue who this person is. <laughs> but I... But he's coming in strong with it. I mean, this is this is honestly my r- r- Nestor Makhno. Yeah, Nestor Makhno. He's Ukrainian okay. as fuck. Like he's Ukrainian as fuck. Okay, yeah. so this is kind of a situation of like, this is v- Vanessa Hudgens to you is Nestor Makhno to me. So who is he? Nestor Makhno was an anarchist warlord and one of the most successful guerrilla commanders in all of history. Um, Without him, we probably would never have had a Soviet Union, which is a mixed bag. And he was was not trying to make a Soviet Union. Uh, I should note that he actually really didn't want it to happen. Not everyone can say that. <laughs> um, but he's a he's a fascinating guy. He's a really influential person. Um, I think a, a a a guy who, in one of the worst periods and places in human history, uh, was was a 
as good a person as you could possibly be. Um, and he's also kind of rad. So we're going to talk about motherfucking Nestor Machno. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. And, you know, if we're going to talk about Nestor before we get into his life, we, we're going to have to talk about Ukraine a little bit. Do you know much okay. about Ukraine, Jamie? I really don't. I got to tell you, I don't. Yeah, almost no one does for good reason. Yeah. Um, okay. See, Ukraine, I think in a lot of Americans, they kind of think of Ukraine as like any other European country, like Germany or fucking Denmark or, 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 or Russia or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the right way to think about it. Ukraine is a colonized land. Um, and Ukrainians, like the Irish, um, mm-hmm. are, are victims of colonization. Um, kind of mm-hmm. like the Sicilians, too, right? Like, th- the things that happened to them, the things we're going to talk about happening to Ukraine, are not entirely dissimilar to things that happened to the Congolese or to indigenous North Americans. Not to say okay. that, like, all of those are the same either, but there's a lot of similarities. They are are a, a victims of colonialism, right? Uh, um, okay. And they weren't considered white by a lot of people until fairly recently. Hitler, like, pl- pl- took over oh. Ukraine to take over. Okay, it like, was eight minutes, eight minutes before we hit Hitler. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> you can, that, that's a fun game to play like with to every episode it. of the show. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, but Hitler, no, Hitler wanted their land because it's good growing land. But his plan was basically to white to to genocide them all slowly over time um, to make way for for white people, right? And like he was huh. not the only person to have had a vi- a broadly similar plan with Ukraine. Okay. Um, yeah, so the Russia we know today actually got its name from Ukraine. Uh, Russia comes from the Kievan Rus. Uh, the capital of Ukraine is Kiev. Um, mm-hmm. You know, pretty obvious that's math there. in the top one things I know about Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a thing people tend to know. Uh, mm-hmm. For most of modern history, native Ukrainians have been pretty oppressed. Uh, from 1775 to 1782, Catherine II, who is, is generally known as an enlightened despot, uh, which maybe isn't a term we should use. Um, <laughs> I was like, is that, that is for sure the French an oxymoron. That's for sure an oxymoron. She was really good at making painters and shit like her, but she was also like a brutal tyrant. Uh, okay, so you know, there's, she's enlight- you know, there's pros and cons. We all contain yeah. multitudes. She's enlightened because people with fancy coats like her, but also she rules thousands of what are essentially slaves with an iron fist. You huh. know, an enlightened you know. despot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's a despot with clout some serious yeah. clout okay. she had some okay. serious clout and she used that clout jamie to give away five million hectares of ukrainian land to russian nobles um she didn't ask the people who were already occupying it first uh oh, okay. she also well, that's yeah. that's where the despot comes in yeah that's the despot part the enlightened part yeah. was giving it away um mm-hmm. she also gave a bunch of land to german colonizers who'd moved into the area with her blessing um and a lot of these people that she gave all this land to didn't actually wind up living on the land they were basically absentee landlords kind of like what the irish dealt with right like okay. you give the land to your to your loyal noble followers and they use it to make money for themselves but they don't they don't go there they're not going to leave moscow or whatever um and although was a lot everyone of them, else like displ- everyone was else was displaced from the land g- generally they just became serfs who were the property of the people who own the land right like that's usually more how it went terrifying now, yeah, it's awful. Now, whenever you have colonization, and that's really what's occurring to Ukraine in the 1700s, uh, you have resources that the colonizers are trying to plunder. And in Ukraine's case, it's the infamous black earth. Ukrainian soil is incredibly fertile. It's the breadbasket of Europe, right? A lot of Europe, mm-hmm. it's hard to like grow food on. Ukraine grows a fuckload of food. 
Um, it's like where your fucking sunflower oil comes from today, but like a lot of shit grows in Ukraine. People have been fighting over Ooh. it for a long time as a result. Googling um, Ukrainian products. Yeah, yeah. They make some good sausages, some good soups. I had the worst calamari of my life there, but it wasn't a war zone, so I'm not going to blame them too much. Uh, nice. <laughs> I'm seeing, yeah, I'm seeing soup. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing t-shirts that say I'm Ukrainian. You couldn't handle me with instructions. Is yeah, that, that was uh, that was yeah, that was the the most popular. That's what everyone was fighting over in 1803. Was the, <laughs> the was the, the Ukrainian novelty t-shirts? Actually, all of Europe's novelty t-shirts are grown in Ukrainian soil. So this is wow. Yeah, <laughs> secret histories. That's why Hitler and Stalin fought over the land. You know, just, that's what really decided World War Two. Your calamari choice in a war zone. You're like, you know what would be? I great had to right try now? it. I you had, had to, to try it. <laughs> that's fair. And when it was as bad as I expected war zone calamari to be. <laughs> uh, one day I'll go back to Konstantinivka and see if I can get better calamari. So. um... After Catherine II, in 1803, the Tsar of Russia assigned 1,000 hectares of Ukrainian land to every retired Russian officer and 500 to every retired NCO. And what he was doing with his retired soldiers and what Catherine did with the Germans was the same idea, basically. Like, you have this land that's rebellious and filled with people you don't trust, so you Mm -hmm. give it to people – you have people that – either you trust or that have to be loyal to you move there. Like you say, hey, Germans, I'll give you land here if you'll help me oppress the local, like the native Ukrainians, right? Like your okay. your job is going to be to keep this shit on lock for me. It's the okay. same thing with her retired soldiers, right? This happens right. all over the world. The Romans did it a shitload. Um, now, one of the main groups of foreigners brought into Ukraine in this period to help the czars and tsarinas uh, maintain control were the Mennonites. Now, Ukraine's Mennonites came over from Germany in the late 1700s when Catherine the Great gave, again, gave them a, a shitload of land that she'd stolen from indigenous Cossack and Nogai tribes people. Now, each family, each Mennonite family was given 175 hectares and granted immunity to taxes for 30 years. This generous deal made sense because Mennonites were famously hard workers, and the empress saw this as an investment. As a result, Many Mennonites in Ukraine were wealthy. They owned serfs, and when serfdom was abolished, they basically owned people who were pretty much sharecroppers. So serfdom is like you are you are not it's not as bad as being like a chattel slave in like the American South, but it's uh-huh. it's on that same scale. You are part of the land. So if a, a, a nobleman owns land that serfs are on, he owns you and you're bound to that land. Okay. This it's is not a very bleak chart that you're describing. It's the way all of Europe works in the medieval period, right? And it's the Mm -hmm. way Ukraine continues to work and Russia continues to work into the 1860s. Got it. So everywhere else in Europe is like, oh, this is a terrible way to have a society. And (laughs) Russia's like, why change? It could be so much worse. Yeah. There's steam engines when Russia's like, yeah, we should probably not have serfs. (laughs) (laughs) That might be bad. (laughs) Russia's so stressful. Mm-hmm. God. All right. Incredibly well, stressful. So I now, just yeah. yeah. It's bleak. Now, given yeah. what most Americans know about Mennonites, you might assume that being a peasant for a Mennonite overlord would be like your best case scenario of being like a serf or a peasant, you know, if you have to be. On like the like, disenfranchisement yeah. scale. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because Mennonites are pacifists, right? They don't use violence. Uh, they're supposed mm-hmm. to be like, our Mennonites are pretty chill folks. You know, Mennonites <laughs> have a big big factor in like the American anti-war movements for a long time. Um, they're they're yeah. supposed to be pretty chill. That has not always been the case and was not the case in Ukraine. Ukrainian Mennonites 
we're not uh, pacifist in any way that you would recognize as pacifist. Uh, And I found a heavily researched and citation full write-up of all of this on a a site called libcom.org, which is a libertarian communalist sort of uh, information warehouse or whatever. Uh, And Speaking of stressful sounding locations to be, I believe you. Uh, uh, And it notes, quote, those who labored on these estates included Russo-Ukrainian peasants and landless Mennonites. In their treatment of laborers and serfs, the Mennonite landlords were indistinguishable from their Russo-Ukrainian peers. A representative incident, a Mennonite landowner caught a Russo-Ukrainian laborer stealing grain, so he pushed the laborer into the grain bin and nailed down the lid. He waited two days and then called the mayor to have the captive flogged. Many Mennonite landlords practiced collective punishment. When theft was suspected, all the potential suspects were flogged, so as to teach a lesson to both the guilty and the innocent. The principle of pacifism had therefore been abandoned by wealthy Mennonites long before the Russian Revolution. Holy so, shit. It sucks to be in Ukraine for a long time. And it's not easy now, you know, what with the yeah. invasion. Um, that's, I mean, even for a landlord, that is that's bad. bad. <laughs> that's and I, I'm pointing bad. out that the Mennonites are doing this because of some stuff that comes later. But that's everyone who has land in Ukraine, right? Wow. That's that's yeah. the Mennonites. That's the Germans. That's that's Jewish people. That's which like some of them like there's about one percent of landlords. But like okay. everyone who is rich in Ukraine is that kind of terrible to the people who are bound to the land. That um, is fucked. I like. Yeah, it's Russians. I've had you know? bad landlord experiences, but. Yeah, that's that's new. That's new. These are like like hyper landlords, right? Because these are landlords mm-hmm. that also own you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, huh. most of the Ukrainian peasantry were uh, serfs up until serfdom was abolished in 1861. Oh, and I should also note that like we're like there were wealthy Mennonite and, and Jewish and Russian and German landlords. There were poor people of all who were also basically owned by their landlords too right oh, good, this is good, not good. A, a religion or an ethnicity thing this is a the way rich people are in ukraine wow. thing you know okay yeah so uh jesus yeah basically everyone who isn't rich is a serf up until like 1861 now before okay. abolition again serfs were basically enslaved um pretty close to that at least uh, and when the serfs were freed they were given tiny parcels of their native land three hectares per family on average uh, and they generally had to buy that land back from the person who had owned them previously the best lands in ukraine were given to the czar these were called crown lands uh, uh, uh other good lands were given to his nobles the clergy and favored foreigners like the mennonites and the germans mm-hmm. uh for one example of kind of how the breakdown of land ownership in ukraine went in 1891 in the province of ekaterina German planters, who were 4% of the population, controlled 9.46% of the land. Greeks, who were 2% of the population, controlled nearly 7% of the land. And Ukrainian peasants, who made up 70% of the population, controlled only 37.5% of the land. So, Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's honestly a higher number than I expected, yeah, but that's yes. not good. Because, again, serfdom was abolished and they were given, you know, a chunk of land. But in many cases, they were still, it was the worst land and they were still paying it off to the people who had owned their parents, you know? I mean, when you put it that way, it still sounds like a pretty bad deal. It's a raw deal. Again. It's a raw deal. (laughs) There are not a lot of points in modern history where you would have wanted to live in Ukraine. 
<laughs> it sounds pretty fucking awful there. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, that's, like Ukraine is a beautiful country. I've I've enjoyed the people. They've just like been continuously fucked over by everyone around them. They're like, if you look at the position of Ukraine and Europe, they're in the mm-hmm. worst case because they have the best land and they're in between mm-hmm. Germany and Russia and Poland. Like, <laughs> it's a horrible we are place really to be in the crossfires of like yeah. <laughs> uh, bleak places that could colonize your land. Well, yeah. that explains the whole. I'm Ukrainian. You couldn't handle me with instructions novelty t-shirt mm-hmm. you know now they're it's, a quarrelsome it's all people to they've had to be yeah <laughs> it yeah. makes sense for survival based purposes mm-hmm. now the other native peoples of ukraine are called cossacks um mm-hmm. and the cossacks are complicated as hell they're a nomadic horse riding warrior people who traditionally live by a mix of shepherding banditry and selling their services as mercenaries they're famous warriors <laughs> they're like mongols right it's like Pretty dramatic sounding, honestly. Yeah, they're fucking, they are dramatic. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, is there like a fashion element to this? Because it just sounds like there are a lot. Yeah, there's some, there are some amazing pictures. I will Google, (laughs) uh, there's a great painting of Cossacks um, that is, is fucking cool as hell, Jamie. It's, it's one of the (laughs) raddest pictures in all of the history of pictures. And uh, yeah. I'll, I'll send it along to you in a second. So the Cossack, the term Cossack was applied by Europeans as like kind of a, a broad term to encompass all the different groups of these people, even though every Cossack mm-hmm. band and tribe was different. And you'll hear them described differently. A lot of people will describe them as different tribes, different bands. It's not entirely based on like family ties or ethnicity, because a lot in a lot of cases, like. Cossack bands will adopt anyone who wants to come in as a Cossack, which also okay. like actually some Native American tribes did at certain periods, too. So it's not I don't know. It's I, I, I'm not an expert on the on the Cossacks, um, okay. but they did a lot of like different Cossack bands did a lot of different stuff. So there were Cossack groups who sold their services to the czar and were basically the czar's shock troopers. Like when there was a rebellion, the czar would send in his Cossacks to fucking murder everybody. Um, and when Napoleon invaded Russia, his fleeing army, like he got, he got beaten and he wound up fleeing from Moscow. Um, his army was harried and massacred by Cossacks, you know, they're fast and they're terrifying. They're like the Mongols and they come from a similar area. Like you have all these different peoples who live on horseback in the Asian steppes and they're really good at fighting. The Cossacks are one of those groups. Okay. Um, Okay. Back in the 1600s, when Ukraine was owned by Poland, and Poland was the one fucking around in Ukraine, there was a mass uprising of Ukrainian Cossacks and peasants against the Poles that succeeded in kicking Poland out of Ukraine and also bringing Poland into Russian control because there weren't enough Cossacks left alive after beating off Poland to run the country, basically. Well, sure. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. There was also a genocide that occurred during this that the Cossacks committed against Jewish (laughs) people called the Kalnitsky Massacre that might have been the largest massacre of Jewish people prior to the Holocaust. Some, 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 like, anyway... Complicated history here. So now uh, I sent you a picture. So if you're playing the the bastards bingo, that was about twenty one and a half minutes till genocide. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, one, of these, do- one of these yeah, guys but- looks like Santa in the picture you sent. He's <laughs> yeah. kind of wearing a little. <laughs> Wow. I love So the Cossacks in this famous painting, there's this famous painting of a bunch of Cossacks (laughs) looking like rad dudes smoking and drinking and covered in weapons and like, yeah, writing a letter back to the con. Yeah, there's a Santa looking motherfucker. It's a very famous painting. He's got the hand motion. 
And oh, it's a nice. it's a painting of a group of Cossacks called the Zaporogs. And the Zaporog Cossacks are the group who led that rebellion against Poland. Um, they're the Cossack community who kind of like was native to Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and they were the same Cossack community who would one day produce a little baby named Nestor Makhno. Um, so that's, mm. this is, this is, that's everything has been sort of laying the groundwork for where this guy comes from. But like the people in that Got painting it. are like Nestor's ancestors. Um, to give you an literally, idea of one of, of them looks like Santa. Yeah. So one this of them does exciting. a heavily armed Santa. <laughs> <laughs> are you implying that Santa at present, uh, me is not heavily armed? I'll tell you, he's like not he heavily armed to enough to come into my house. Wow. wow. Oh, shit. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I shoot to kill on Christmas. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to quote now from a, uh, a, a very fun book about Machno called Anarchy's Cossack that talks a little bit about what the Cossacks were like and kind of what wow. the, what the political tradition was in the area where Machno grew up before the czar took over. Okay. They clung to their Republican traditions, what was known as Cossack freedoms, namely the practice of settling all their problems in general assembly, the Krug, and of appointing their own Ottoman, an elected and revocable military leader. The Zaporogs were free men, or men whose ambition was to be such. They welcomed many outsiders to their ranks, Russians fleeing their despotic rulers or serfdom, retainers, peasants, townsfolk, vagabonds of various origins fleeing taxation, constraint and all manner of servitude, and lured by the Zaporogs' manner and free way of life— their Volnitsia. They could stay permanently or just sample Cossack life for a spell. In principle, every free Ukrainian was a Cossack while retaining his land and could be mobilized at a moment's notice. So the Cossacks have like a long wow. kind of democratic tradition. Like a lot of like a lot of tribes, like a lot of hunter-gatherers, they don't yeah. like, you know, if your reputation is we're all really good at killing, it's kind of hard to have a very like strict leader in charge of you because everyone's yeah. got weapons and is good at murdering each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's the cause. And and Ukrainian peasants had some democratic traditions, too, that go back a pretty long way that were kind of like they they weren't powerful enough for the czar to really care about cracking down on them. But there are some Mm -hmm. self-government traditions that exist in this region, even underneath the czar's oppression. So the Zaporogs had been mostly like wiped out by the Russian government back in the 1700s. A lot of them had been turned into serfs, their homes and lands despoiled. But they were kind of still around and most more or less baked into the scenery by October 27th, 1888, when a little baby killer, boy named Nestor Machno was born. The yeah. Zaporogs is such a good name for a group. Hardcore name games it's in the so Cossacks. so good. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a college band as a compliment. That's one of the reasons I love kind of Eastern European history, because everything is just rad as fuck. Like, <laughs> it all sounds very yeah. like punk rock. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly punk rock region of the globe. So uh, <laughs> Nestor was the fifth son of his parents who had been serfs to a guy named Shabelsky back in the days before getting their freedom. Now, the land that they'd been given was too small to feed them. And so Nestor's dad spent the rest of his life working for the guy who used to own him, which sucks. I, yeah. I I wouldn't. Yeah. I don't imagine That's you'd want to do that. That's not yeah. a vibe I'm trying to pursue. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want that. Uh, Nestor was a very good student with a particular gift for arithmetic and reading, but he only got about two truncated school years worth of education before his dad died, and his family was poor enough that at age ten he had to start working full time. Um, Wait, how so, old is he when he starts working full time? Ten. Ten. Okay. He's a ten-year-old okay. man. <laughs> He's wow! I love that. Well, double digits, you know. Grow the fuck up, Nestor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's his you job? Know, you know what else is a ten-year-old man, Jamie? 
but no, where is this going? Yeah, the dude. products and services that support this podcast. This is so wow. inaccurate. A hard 10. No. Little entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They better not, be. This is not Shark Tank, Robert. <laughs> it, it could be. What if Has we did that show? Has there been a child on Shark Tank? Oh, 100%. That's, that's so fucked up. It's cable television. They're, they're, they're I know what we've been masses. talking about is fucked up. But there was a little on kid on once, and his, his pitch was terrible, so Mark Cuban put a cigar out on him. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah, good. It was, it was good TV. Lies, That'll teach lies you. Robert That'll has teach told you. me that sound very true. <laughs> I was like, it could be true. I mean, I feel like so, an adult putting a cigarette out on you, that'll teach you to never do things. Yeah, and an adult putting a cigar out on you. Like, <laughs> really that'll keep you bound to the land. That's like a, a career change. That is yeah. a career change. <laughs> All right. Here's products that probably won't put a cigar out on you. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. 
Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! Uh, yes. So I have almost finished my first full cup of of Death Wish coffee, which is reportedly uh-huh. the strongest coffee in the world. And I guess I have a severe caffeine addiction because you it just have a severe a- caffeine addiction. <laughs> I just like rush ordered sugar free pear Red mm-hmm. Bull to my house. Yeah, I mean it's pretty good no coffee shame. actually. It's nice. I got sugar free pear Red Bull is the one that you also like, Robert. It's the sugar free pear Red Bull is very tasty. It is. I got a real uh, shit yourself brand of uh, iced coffee today. I got like it's got too much dairy in it. It's the it's. I think I talked about it with you before. It's the TikTok stars coffee uh, order. I oh, I wish there was a brand yeah, yeah, with the courage yeah. to just be called shit yourself iced coffee. <laughs> it's just like this coffee will make you shit yourself. You need to get your day started. Like we will fucking ruin your pants. <laughs> you will never sleep again. But you better wear a pair of pants you're not too attached. You to. got the That's Charlie. The kind of vibe is that I'm what you're telling me, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, I got the yeah. Charlie so at Dunkin' bad. Donuts. I got Robert the Charlie. doesn't know who Charlie is, and it's just great. I think for that's me. honestly no. for the. It's I would fine. be so he, worried. He doesn't you need don't, to know. No. Don't learn. Well, who Charlie we're not is. talking about any Charlie here. We're talking about Nestor Macno. So yeah. Nestor was a good student <laughs> as a little boy. Uh, he had a gift for arithmetic and reading. But yeah, he only got about two years of school before at age 10, he has to help provide for his family. He worked mm-hmm. full time from 10 onwards, generally for other wealthy property owners like the man who had once owned his parents. Nestor later wrote that this experience awoke in him a sort of rage, resentment, and even hatred for the wealthy property owner. I think we can all identify okay. with that. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. that that's a very relatable in for yeah. us and, he's, and Lil He's Nest. a relatable guy. He's a yeah. cool um, relatable. I feel like, okay, I am picturing 10-year-old Nestor with the facial hair that I'm seeing uh, in all of the Google images. All of his Cossacks. Yeah, he had a full beard yeah. by age seven. Absolutely. That's when you become <laughs> yeah. a little man. That's what happens. Yeah. So more than anything, Nestor hated the wealthy children of these rich people. He particularly okay, hated when relatable. these- that is very relatable. He <laughs> called them young idlers. And he, more than anything, he hated when they would walk near him, quote, and this is from Nestor's biography, all fresh and neat with full bellies in the cleanest clothes, reeking of perfume yeah. while he, filthy and in rags, barefooted and stinking of dung, scattered bedding for the calves. See, from an early yeah. age, Nestor, like he was working in like, the, he was like fucking cleaning up after the cow. So he smelled like shit all the time. And he was extremely yeah. aware from an early age that his circumstances were unjust and that the situation was crooked. Um, he also felt it was more or less Nestor hopeless. So he told himself that, yeah, yeah, like you fucking I, get to smell nice because I have to clean up shit for your family. Like I fucking hate you people. Yeah, I love a child with deep seated class issues from like the jump. That is like a mm-hmm. very powerful energy from to the, take from into the life. Fucking jump. Yeah, yeah he, he goes like, from there's... zero to fucking stat. Yeah, it's like the I'm like damn I. It, it reminds me of all the Sophie. Do you remember those weird, uh, those weird little juice bar perfumes that like rich girls in Why junior yes. high would have? Why yes, they had gummy, I do. 
They had pictures of gummy bears on them. They yeah. all went to fucking soccer camp. It was disgusting. I'm with I'm with Nestor. Meanwhile, I yeah. smell like a goddamn hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely she, did not own because I was not hip or rich. But yes. Yeah. You know, you brought this up in our Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> episode, Jamie. That time you were drunk and hucked a bottle at a rich Stanford kid who was or <laughs> yes. Harvard kid who was who was uh uh, uh, in who so, was rowing? Was he? he was yeah. rowing. Yeah, <laughs> Nestor has strong hucking a beer bottle at a rowing Ivy League college student energy. <laughs> like, it's sick. It's sick. I like him so far. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't yeah. fuck up. He he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't succeed in his ultimate goals, but they're pretty ambitious. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, he he felt that like as fucked up as the situation were, it was pretty much unhealthless. Uh, this is how things are, and he, you know, he had it was his lot in life to work for his landowning masters, and they would pay him a pittance to reek of animal shit, so that they didn't have to reek of animal shit. So Nestor went on with life, showing enough talent that as he grew up, he was promoted from taking care of cows to taking care of horses, which is the podcasting of the taking care of animals game. Woo, I think we can all cool. agree. I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, it was in this job that he would witness one of the defining experiences of his young life. He walked into the stable one day to see the landlord's sons beating several of the young peasant boys who worked in the stable for some minor fuck-up. He was enraged by this, but the dark recesses of his mind, as he wrote it, made him accept it. And like a real slave, he strove, just like the others about him, to avert his eyes and pretend he saw and heard not a thing. So he's saying, like, mentally in this period, he was so enslaved that, like, he couldn't even resist this like he knew it was fucked up but there was nothing to do he'd grown up hearing stories Mm -hmm. about his parents being beaten his mom had been a serf and she there's this thing called the corvée which is this old tradition under serfdom where you have to do free forced labor in lieu of taxes for your master and she would refused to do it at one point after being freed when she didn't have to um Mm -hmm. and she'd been whipped 15 times for doing so so he'd grown up hearing stories like this that like if you don't do what they want they'll they just beat you and that's the way life is but he also had this he'd also he was came from cossack ancestry so his mom had also told him stories of the battles of his free ancestors who had like fought for their liberty you know with fucking swords so he grows up with both of these things in his in his mind you know mm-hmm. and i'm assuming his mom omitted the genocide um i you mean know, moms tend to do that <laughs> that's a classic mom move yeah um so you know nestor grows up like kind of consumed with this mixture of rage at what his mom had endured and the sense that he had ancestors who wouldn't have taken this shit, which is kind of warring in him when he's 12, 13, 14 years old. And eventually the same situation came round again where he sees pe- kids being beaten by the children of his, his master. I'm going to quote from Anarchy's Cossack here. One summer's day in 1902, the young Nestor, 13 years old, was present at a run-of-the-mill scene. The landlord's sons, his manager and his assistant, set about insulting and then raining blows on the second stable boy in the presence of all the other stable hands. Half dead from fear at the wrath of their masters, that's Nestor's words, Nestor could Mm -hmm. take no more, and he ran off to alert the head stable boy, Botko Ivan, who was busy in a cowshed trimming the horse's tails. Learning of what was afoot, Botko Ivan, an elemental force, burst like a man 
possessed into the room where the chastisement was underway, pitched into the young nobles and their acolytes, and sent them rolling in the dirt with swathing punches and kicks. The attackers, attacked, fled in disarray, some through the window, some through the nearest doorway. This was the signal for revolt. All of the day laborers and stable boys were outraged and went off in a body to demand an explanation. The old landlord took fright and in conciliatory tone besought them to forgive the idiocy of his young heirs, to remain in his service, and even undertook to see that nothing of the sort would ever happen again. Botko Ivan related the episode to young Nestor, treating him to the first words of rebellion he had ever heard in his life. And this is Botko Ivan. Botko's like boss, basically. Oh, okay. Hi, everybody. Robert Evans here. And I need to admit something. I lied to Jamie just then. Botko does not mean boss. It means daddy. And if you know anything about Jamie Loftus, you understand why I had to lie to her about what that word meant, because we would not have gotten through the episode otherwise. No one here should countenance the disgrace of being beaten. And as for you, little Nestor, if one of your masters should ever strike you, pick up the first pitchfork you lay hands on and let him have it. This advice, once poetic and brutal, left a terrible mark upon Nestor's young soul and awakened him to his dignity. Henceforth, he would keep a fork or some other tool within reach, meaning to put it to good use. So after this, he keeps like a fork on him at all times in case he's going to stab a rich kid, which fucking rules. (laughs) The way that this is written is, first of all, very like cinematic it's yeah. epic the way yeah. it's written because it's all they're all he's saying is and then the guy beat the shit out of a bunch of rich kids and it was awesome and <laughs> now i always ruled. carry a fork with me yeah like because i'm weird but that is so it sounds like a like a superhero origin story he when you hear this guy's life there's a bit of that like he mm-hmm. he has a he's a fucking and he's, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who hate this guy. We'll talk a little bit about some of the allegations against him um, because oh, he no. was he, he wound up being anti-Soviet. You know, he fought against the Reds and the Whites during the Soviet, the Russian Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a you lot start of to like anybody on this podcast. And you I don't. Well, hold on. Yeah. Like, and then I'll tell you about this fucked up shit you know, that happened later. <laughs> We don't know if it actually happened because there's a lot of like he he fought against when he realized what the Soviet Union was going to be. He fought against the the Bolsheviks as well as the fascists okay. and the monarchists because um, he was like an I, advocate of liberty. And like, yeah, there are a bunch of stories that are, he already I know he, we said he already had a beard by the time that this happened. But I imagine yeah. actually at the end of this story, a beard explodes out of his face because he's had just yeah. this revelatory moment. <laughs> when when Botko Ivan tells him to just stab rich people, he like he goes, a beard explodes Poof. out of his beard. Yeah, that was his second yeah. beard. Yeah, yeah. It's, You're uh, a man yeah, in Ukraine when you get your second beard. beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First beard. That's kid shit. Yeah. Have a beard. First and beard. Carry ah, a fork. He, does, he hasn't lost his baby beard yet. <laughs> <laughs> At age 14, Nestor quit his stable job and got a gig as an apprentice at a local foundry. He made wheels for harvesting machines, and this improvement in his own quality of life corresponded to a similar improvement among the rest of his family. His three older brothers got married and left the home to set up households of their own, which meant things were a bit less tight for Nestor and his mother and his younger brother. Eventually, Nestor moved on from foundry work to being the sales assistant for a wine merchant, but he found this job disgusting. He couldn't stand doing it, and he quit after just a couple of months. Too busy. 
bougie. is too bougie for Nestor. Too bougie. And so uh, the book Anarchy's Cossack, which is definitely is a, a, a very well-sourced so, biography. I, you keep but, saying Anarchy's Cossack, but I'm hearing Gravity's Rainbow each and every oh, time. It's, it's like, a way better book than fucking Thomas Pynchon's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> this is a, an anti-Pynchon podcast. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and it's available for free online, too. You can buy a copy from AK Press, but there's also the whole thing is hosted on uh, libcom.org. But um, mm. yeah, he's there's a, a lot of debate because, again, this guy was extremely uh, controversial. And a lot of people were claimed that he was an outrageous drunk, that he flew into violent rages and like murdered people while drunk. And it's possible, like obviously – the Ukrainian peasants are a hard-drinking people. Soldiers who spend multiple years straight without break fighting tend to drink heavily. Totally possible he got sure. up to some shit while drinking. Also, a lot of these stories tend to involve him, like, cut tearing 13 people apart with a knife or something. Like, crazy shit that, like, just didn't happen. Like, I thought and his it's, weapon was a fork. Yeah, so I was so, about yeah. to say fake news. Fake news. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> it's, it's hard guy. to say. There's also claims that he was not a drinker at all. And Anarchy's Cossack takes the aim that he was like not at all a drinker um and that he 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 more or less avoided alcohol i don't think that's entirely true either i we was have, like that doesn't sound likely given the environment right we we do have we do have an account from a woman who knew him in his last years uh in paris who knew him for like three years and knew him fairly well and saw him drink occasionally but he would never drink more than about a glass of wine and he would kind of be fucked up after a glass of wine and not okay. able to take more and she was like he was very temperate she and she noted she assumed that he like drank as much as normal peasants drank but she saw no evidence that he was like a hardcore alcoholic or that he got violent when he was he was intoxicated he was definitely mm -hmm. prone to depression but i don't know it, again there there's there are there is so much there are so many hit pieces out about this guy um that were written at the time it's kind of hard to tell exactly what happened who's um, a hater and who's reporting the facts yeah yeah now yeah, but there's one of the claims is that like he developed a distaste for wine in particular and alcohol in general working for this mine mer wine merchant. He wasn't much of a drinker. I don't really know what the case was. Uh, mm. I never met the guy because he died in oh. 1935. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. So for the next few years after quitting the wine business, Machno mostly helped his mom keep up their small property, uh, take care of their one horse, and did odd jobs around town to make ends meet. He spent time working as a house painter and a decorator until he'd saved up enough money to buy a cart for his brother's small farm. They used it Wait, to transport like wheat. He did like he did like interior design for a while? Yeah, he was a home, a home decorator for a while. Uh, I would love to see his portfolio. I I, just, I, I am very curious as well. <laughs> what is the what is what kind of spaces is Nestor curating? He's like, here's yeah. the dining table, no forks. I am the only one that can have the fork. <laughs> he's, he's strapped with forks like a fucking terrorist with a bomb vest. <laughs> it's just all property brothers, but, but with a lot of forks. I really hate that show. Yeah, he was a, he was a, he, he he was a guy who had a wide range of gigs as a young man. Um, I like that things were seem to be going well. Boy for his family, broadly speaking, until 1904, when Russia went to war with Japan for no reason, really. This is the Russo-Japanese War, one of the dumbest wars that ever happened. And Russia gets its ass handed to it. <laughs> like, nice. like, this war is why Japan becomes a major thing on the international stage, because, like, white people up to 1905, which is when, like, the fighting starts, are all like, Nobody can fuck with white people. Like, we're the fucking... And then the Japanese just destroy an entire Russian fleet. And everyone's like, whoa! 
And that's mm. you do yeah. that noise one more time. What? Yeah, yeah that's that's that's, that's what Europe says after the Russo-Japanese War. <laughs> I feel um, like that'd be a great alarm sound. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, when Russia goes to war with Japan, they con they conscript a bunch of people, and Nestor's older brother Sava was sent to the front, and he gets horribly injured in this war. He's a uh, they call he's what's called no. by people at the time an invalid the rest of his life. He's like okay. badly wounded in this, and and not not. Fully, uh. yeah. Uh, he never comes back in a lot of ways. Now, that war was followed by a failed revolution in 1905 and 1906 of the socialist variety. So Russia enters into a dumb war, gets their ass kicked, and there's a revolt, uh, like you do. Now, I want to pause here to talk a little bit about Tsar Nicholas II. You know, he's the Tsar who, after in 1917, gets overthrown. His whole family gets killed by the Bolsheviks. And um, because he and his young children get massacred in captivity, I, I think he's become a, a figure a lot of people find sympathetic. You know, uh, mm. the Romanovs are like, there's a lot of... They were brutal dictators, right? Like, like yeah. even Nicholas, who there, if you read like his letters to his wife and stuff, he's a guy, there are definitely sympathetic things about him. He's a dude who really legitimately loved his wife, which is rare among royalty. He had a sick, terminally ill child, you know. There's some I sick, but I am brutal. so sick of the, yeah, they were horrible. They were absolutely They were fucking horrible. monsters. The fact they were fucking that monsters. And I am no apologist for the Bolsheviks, but I will say if there's ever a justified case to murder an entire family, it's when they owned you. They fucking <laughs> suck. Like they, yeah. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've cracked open my Rasputin biography again recently. Yeah. And I'm like, they were fucking monsters. I and they also were trash. Like, yeah, I hate that argument that whenever people make, they're like, well, yeah, sure, he was a brutal, horrible ruler who hated his people, but he was kind of a wife guy. And you're like, well, well I don't care if he's a wife guy. I don't care if he's a wife guy. So he was a guy who like he he would he was very he constantly expressed, you know, loving his people um and wanting to like be known by them and wanting to like talk to them and stuff. But whenever they would express opinions that he 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 didn't hold or that he didn't think they should hold, then the dictator came out again, right? Like he loved the idea of being loved by his people, but he didn't actually like he also thought that he he was like he thought he was divinely appointed to rule them, you know? Yeah. You can't be a Turned good guy and think true. that. Um, so to give a little bit of like context to how brutal Nicholas himself was, we've talked a lot about the brutality of the Russian regime, but let's talk specifically about Nicholas here for a second. On okay. January 22nd, 1905, a massive crowd of thousands of working men gathered outside the Tsar's main palace in St. Petersburg to protest all the bullshit. Um, and the Tsar orders a crackdown on them. And a correspondent from the London Times was there. And here's what he wrote. The first trouble began at 11 o'clock when the military tried to turn back some thousands of strikers at one of the bridges. The same thing happened almost simultaneously at the other bridges, where the constant flow of workmen pressing forward refused to be denied access to the common rendezvous in the palace square. The Cossacks at first used their knouts, wooden clubs, and then the flat of their sabers, and finally they fired. The passions of the mob broke loose like a bur bursting dam. The people, seeing the dead and dying carried away in all directions, the snow on the streets and pavements soaked with blood, cried aloud for vengeance. Meanwhile, the situation in the palace was becoming momentarily worse. The troops were reported to be unable to control the vast message which were constantly surging forward. Reinforcements were sent, and at the at two o'clock, the order was given to fire. The order was given by the Tsar. Men, women, and children fell at each volley and were carried away in ambulances, sledges, and carts. And by the time it was over, as many as 500 people had been shot dead on Nicholas's orders. Like, that's that was like one 
thing that he did. Um, and, you Evil. know, this uprising in 1905 is put down brutally. Uh, number one, like hundreds of different czarists institute pogroms against Jewish people and leftists who they see as the same in order to, you know, defend their monarch. Mm-hmm. Nicholas sends troops into the Baltic provinces in Georgia and orders them to massacre everyone who resists. By the time it's over, he kills about 13,000 people putting down this rebellion. Um, well, here's my question. Um, then why is he made out to be such a nice guy in the animated Anastasia, my favorite movie? Because he uh, seems really nice and he gives her a little kiss on the forehead. So I just have some questions about that because I'm pretty sure that cartoon is a documentary. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's very accurate to how he was with his kids. Uh, he just had other people's kids shot by mercenaries. They should have shown that in the movie, maybe. Could have been eh, fun. M- might have been nice. You know, Disney's There's also, only always completely truthful and historically accurate on everything that they do ever. There's I like a fun the bat. Documentary the on fuck. Like it might have been Netflix recently about the Romanovs. That's like a live action one. And it does leave out some of the brutality. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> People love to cut the Romanovs yeah. slack. They Meanwhile, love to pre- I want to talk yeah. about the Rasputin daughters who got, you know, sent to Siberia when they were teenagers for for just for just being related to Rasputin, you know? Yeah, and then what a, about all the kids that got shot? And what about what about Ra Ra Rasputin himself, lover of the Russian queen? You know? Yeah, the king of disco. He he was the king of disco. <laughs> Remember so, when they were like, we found his dick, and then they were like, wait a second, this is a pickle. <laughs> it was, <laughs> was... It was some other giant dick. Uh, there is a uh, giant penis out there that's been preserved that is reputed to be Rasputin's, but is probably not. But there is a there is a big mummified wang out there. I don't My know favorite, how, but I would I like you they're... to make that into an ad break transition. Yeah. <laughs> you know who else mummifies penises? Tell me. <laughs> Please tell us. The products and services that support this podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the revolution didn't really touch Makhno's hometown of Gulyai Polyi, which is where he grows up. Uh, but news of the brave attempts of the revolutionaries to overthrow the czar inspire Makhno. So he, 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 he grows up hearing about this and he like it, it sets his imagination aflame. And he starts to believe that perhaps people like him are not destined to be ruled by kings and landlords and the like. Nestor starts reading forbidden literature. And since he was just a baby leftist at this point, that meant social democratic propaganda. Uh, he was initially thrilled by their, quote, socialist phraseology and their phony revolutionary ardor. Uh, As the word phony in that last sentence probably keyed you in on, he fell out of the social democratic spell pretty quickly. So he basically, he becomes Mm -hmm. a Democrat for a little while and then is like, ah, these people don't actually want to change things the way that I want to change things. Um, Wow, been there, baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of people can identify with Nestor's journey. Yeah, it's like, he's actually, he's a very relatable guy I've yeah. found so far. So for a year or so, he's a hard, he's hardcore into the social democratic scene. And one of the things you'll come to understand about Nestor is that when he gets into politics, he gets into politics. He starts handing out thousands of pamphlets about like social democratic literature to everyone who will take them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1906, after like a year of this, he meets some anarchist peasants who had a little reading circle in Gulyai Polyi. And he found himself a attracted to their ideology. Now, the most Mm -hmm. educated member of the group was a guy named Valdemar Antony, the son of an immigrant Czech worker and a lathe worker. Uh, Mm -hmm. Valdemar took Nestor under his wing and Nestor claims, rid his soul once and for all of the lingering (laughs) remnants of the slightest spirit of servility and submission to any authority. Okay. So Nestor gets pilled. (laughs) Yeah, it's like he literally, okay, so Nestor, there's a bunch of like daddy figures in Nestor's life that keep pilling him. Mm -hmm. So now he's got a third beard on top of his, Mm -hmm. every time he's radicalized, he gets another beard. bursts out. (laughs) Wow. When I say anarchist reading circle, that means one thing in the United States today. Um, What Nestor and his friends were doing was profoundly illegal. Uh, revolutionaries had just tried to overthrow the government. All of Russia, and that included Ukraine at this point, was under a mm-hmm. state of siege, as had been proclaimed by the czar. Talking about, like, social Democrat shit was illegal. Anarchist books were, like, meth to the czar's police. People <laughs> alleged to have radical political opinions had just been shot to death and mossed by cops. So, like, <laughs> this sick, is sick, risky sick. shit. Yeah. Um 
Yeah, a, a bunch of Dawn Cossacks who were loyal to the Tsar had been stationed at Gulyaipoli to beat the shit out of anyone who so much as whiffed of socialism. One local writer later described seeing a teacher dragged through the streets by two Dawn Cossacks with sabers, while a third Cossack beat him with a rifle butt, screaming, Take that, you wastrel, for your revolution! Oh my god, okay. Yeah. Okay. And again, the Dawn Cossacks are another group of Cossacks that are like the Tsar's stormtroopers, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so Nestor and his friends took some serious risks to sit around and talk about books. Uh, they met once a week in a group of 10 to 15 people, and they would talk for hours about the idea that it might be possible to live without Zyre someday. Machno later okay. recalled, For me, such nights, we most often would gather to meet by night, were filled with light and joy. We peasants, with our meager learning, would assemble in winter at the home of one of us, in summer in the fields, near a pond, on the green grass, or from time to time in the broad daylight, like young folks out for a stroll. We would meet to debate the issues that move us. He, he remembers this positively I all his life. Like, this is... Yeah. That's that's really pleasant. He's, he's in a book club. He's yeah, he's in a, in a nice club. book club. This that's book club goes to some pretty intense places. <laughs> so, that, it was just a book club for a little while. Um, but after six okay. months of study and careful vetting, conversational <laughs> vetting, they make Nestor a full yeah. member of the group. Um, so he starts to help his friends. They graduate from just reading books to handing out propaganda and giving lectures to their fellow peasants. Um, mm -hmm. And Nestor was eager to do more than that. In the wake of the Tsar's terror, prominent anarchists in Russia had urged their fellows into a period of black terror against Tsarism itself. Being poor cool. peasants, Makhno and his friends had few options when it came to terror. In order to give themselves some options, and options here means guns, they embarked on a campaign of what they would call expropriation and what the law called simple theft. They would target the homes and property of the wealthy, steal shit, and use it to buy weaponry. Makhno and his fellow libertarian communists, as they called themselves at this point, drew the ire of local law enforcement quickly. I'm going to quote from Anarchy's Cossack here. Okay. On September 5th, 1906, in Gulyai Poli, an attack upon the home of the businessman Pletchinger by three individuals armed with revolvers with faces blackened. On October 10th, a fresh attack in Gulyai Poli upon another businessman, Brook, by four individuals, faces concealed by paper masks, who, brandishing revolvers and bombs, demanded 500 rubles for the starving. A little later, a third attack upon a wealthy local industrialist, Kerner, by four individuals, with three more acting as lookouts. In August 1907, in the nearby village of Geitscher, a fourth attack upon yet another businessman, Gurevich, by four individuals wearing sunglasses. And it was this last attack that would get Makhno and his friends in trouble because they wound up shooting it out with the local cops in order to escape. Yes. So, Yeah, it also Nestor, sounds a little reservoir dogs. It's like, yeah. for let, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, Nestor's like 17 at this point when he gets into his first shootout with the cops. God! <laughs> yeah. <Nestor>. Grew up fast. <laughs> Fourth beard. So after after this, as this like this fucking crime spree is going, another uh, I want to talk about one other thing they got into was um, lighting fields on fire in mass because oh, sure. there was this plan in the wake of the 1905 revolution. The czar decides that he wants to uh, he, he wants to create a class of peasants who have money, more money than other peasants, like middle class, basically to separate okay. the peasants because they were like one of the things that scared him is that all of the peasants were kind of the same sort of poor together and that might mean they would rebel together. So he tries to create this group of like peasants who own more land and property than the others called kulaks in order to divide them uh, and Nestor and his friends, like their response to that is to light all of the land of the rich people on fire um, as much oh, as they possibly can. 
Yeah. Right, right. right. I mean, that's just logic. That, yeah. That makes sense. So a, a police superintendent named Karyachinsev, uh, who's generally described as like Gulyai Poli's Sherlock Holmes, uh, starts trying to <laughs> unravel this anarchist ring, like tries to catch them. Uh, okay, and through I want this is, movie. This is good. Yeah, yeah. He basically tortures people uh, until he can identify the people who are responsible for the attacks, but he doesn't have any hard evidence, and so he doesn't want to arrest them. In 1907, he gets his opportunity, though. A member of a political group called the Social Revolutionaries, and, who, and this guy was a friend of Machno's, borrows Machno's mm-hmm. gun, and unfortunately it turns out he'd borrowed it to murder his fiance and then shoot himself. And this happens, oh, like, rats. in the middle of a small town. So, like, Machno runs up to provide medical aid, and he gets arrested immediately. And then one of his friends is arrested for trying to send messages to him in jail. And it's like this whole... Anyway, they they wind up in jail. Um, and this okay. Sherlock Holmes dude starts interrogating them and trying to break them. Um, but they, I they love won't... that there's an anarchist Sherlock Holmes. Oh, no, he's not an anarchist. He's, 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 he's the, the Czar's he's, man. He's the Czar's... Oh. An, no, okay, so he's the Czar's Sherlock. Did the, does, did the anarchist get a Sherlock? No. No. Well, that's they, the problem, isn't it? They do. We'll we'll talk about what happens to Sherlock in a little bit here. But here's what he writes after trying to interrogate Nestor Machno and his friend. I have never before seen men of this metal. I have plenty of evidence on which to state that they are dangerous anarchists. But although I have put their flesh through a little suffering, I have extracted nothing from them. Machno seems like a peasant dolt when one looks at him. But I have very conclusive evidence for claiming that it was he who shot at the gendarmes on August 26th, 1907. Well, now I have done all I was able to extract admissions, but to no effect. On the contrary, he supplied me with facts, which I have checked out and which I have been forced to acknowledge as correct, demonstrating he was not even in Gouliai-Polier on that day. As for the other one, Antony, when I interrogated him, having him beaten at will, he dared declare to me, you dead meat, you'll never get anything out of me. And yet I gave him a good taste of the swing. So he's like, these motherfuckers won't talk even though I beat the shit out of them. <sighs> okay. So it's, uh, uh, so he's, I mean, you have to admire that, right? If you're, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying to get into Sherlock's head. I don't like that Sherlock's a government guy. He is. He's that's a hard, not, co- I mean, the other, the actual Sherlock not, is a government guy. That's true, but at least he did drugs. He did do drugs. I don't know, maybe this guy did drugs. I hope he did drugs. So Machno and his friends spend 10 months in jail. Um, he turns 18 in jail, and this would not be his last day inside of a cell. He was eventually bailed out by, oddly enough, a well-off industrialist who was like a friend of his family who had hired his family members. Um, mm. And by the time Machno was released, the heat was on his friends, and it was declared for a while that he would avoid breaking the law in order to continue to radicalize and recruit more peasants. So he okay. gets another job as a decorator, and he founds an anarchist <laughs> study group of his own with 25 <laughs> peasants from the He keeps becoming a property brother when he needs he, he to loves pay decorating rent. i Look, love that i love nestor machno loves two things shooting it out with the cops and putting together a nice living room set i love that nestor is out here being like okay i know that we're anarchists but like we need to do something with this space that doesn't mean our throw rugs have to clash with the couch you know <laughs> i feel like people associate too often anarchists with clashing patterns and i just think that that doesn't need to happen no why not why like we can look nice and get into gunfights with the police Okay, like, even more so than I want the czar Sherlock Holmes, I want the Anarchist Property Brothers. I do this want the Anarchist. Because <laughs> the Anarchist Property like, Brothers is only squatted properties, too. Like, a yeah, big half of the exactly. show is fighting the police off to stop an eviction yeah, and then, like, like, decorating an the interior. it's more flop. It's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. And then the yeah, second ex- half is very, like, relaxed decoration of yeah. the squatting mm-hmm. spaces. Oh. Yeah. 
So unfortunately, Nestor failed to do, he, you know, he starts running his own book club and he fails to do the same kind of strict vetting that his previous group had done for him. And his reading circle quickly discovers that two of its members are czarist infiltrators and they kill them both. Oops. Like the, 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 the reading circle wow. murders two people who are informing <laughs> the cops. My um, mom's, my mom's circle did that too. <laughs> it's just pretty common among book clubs. <laughs> Look, if you, if this happens in book clubs all the time, if you are not doing like the correct canonical read of Eat, Pray, Love, you're fucked. Yeah, they will fucking shoot you. You're fucked. Bury you in a shallow grave. That's how yeah. book clubs work. That's so, what, have you seen the movie? That's yeah. what happens. Yeah, that's the Joy Luck Club, if I'm not mistaken, also. That um, happens in the Joy Luck Club, and it definitely happens in the Jane Fonda one. <laughs> I got so, so drunk at that at a screening of book club that I got kicked out of the movie theater. That's the only time that's ever happened to me. <laughs> that's the only Is time, it? huh? It is. Uh, it is. There's times I should have been, but I wasn't. But this time, <laughs> you really can't fuck with it. You can't fuck with a, a movie that old people are going to that they won't, that you can't be loud. They're going to yeah. get you kicked out. I have a good vomiting in a movie theater story, but there's aspects of that story that there's still a statute of limitations on. So we'll continue. Um, so yeah, the uh, the group holds a general meeting to talk things out after you know killing two dudes. Uh, but it turns out they still had a police infiltrator in their midst, and the meeting was surrounded by heavily armed Don Cossacks and members of the local Okrana, which are like the czar's secret police. Now, the traitor in their midst, a guy named Levadny, suggested everyone give themselves up, but Nestor and the actual anarchists in the room decided to have a giant gunfight with the cops. It was dark, and they all had pistols, so they ran out shooting, and they actually, like, surprised the cops surrounding their house enough that they killed the second-in-command of the local police, several Cossacks, and several detectives. Um, one of Makhno's friends, Wait. a guy named Simon Yuta, uh, is wounded in the leg during the escape, and his brother An uh, Alexander tries to carry him, but they quickly realize that he was slowing them down too much, so the wounded guy volunteers to stay behind, shooting until he has one bullet left and using the last on himself in order to buy time for his friends. Again, uh, hardcore book club. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what movie yeah. did you throw up at? <laughs> huh? Sorry, what movie was it? <laughs> Oh God! It was Sorry, a midnight movie. <laughs> it was like a showing of I think I think it was a showing of the um what is it what is it the fucking Jim Henson movie with the Skeksis and shit. I, why is that? Wait, like la labyrinth? La uh, no, 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 not labyrinth. No, oh, the no, no, other the, one. The, the, the fucking Dark Skeksis. Crystal. Dark Crystal. I don't that's know. the one. Yes. Dark Crystal. Wow. I don't okay, know if it was sorry. the alcohol or the acid. But I was not going to be able to focus ago, until I had an answer there. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was a the different book club man. is heating up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, the, the book club is heating up. Like nine people have died. <laughs> so <laughs> kill count it's in the a book club. This is good. It's an intense book club. <laughs> not a lot of people save the last bullet for themselves in a book club. <laughs> That's true. No. That's true. So. Of course, uh, so this guy who dies buying time for the other members of the book club, uh, his brother has to avenge his death. And yeah. Machno wasn't about to let his friend avenge his brother's death alone. So after sure. they escaped, they figured that since they just killed a bunch of cops, they might as well assassinate the governor. 
mean, fair well, enough. Yeah, when you're on enough. a hot streak like that, it, you know, I get it. Now, and again, everyone involved in this is a teenager. So we are not talking about the best decisions being made at the time, but they're yeah. committed. <laughs> yeah. so, I like uh, that they're able to channel their horny rage into some yeah. productive, uh, yeah, some productive yeah. anarchy. It, and for, again, several of the people they kill in the shootout are members of the Okrana. And for a little bit of knowledge about the Tsar's secret police, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, like the infamous anti-Semitic propaganda piece, was created mm-hmm. by the Akrana. So, like, shitty dudes. So, like, like, it's not like they don't sort of have a book club massacre coming. They they absolutely deserve a book club massacre. Sure. You can tie millions of deaths to that document. Like, okay. Yeah, anyone who's I'll in the Akrana, you know, I, I got no sympathy. So, um... They decide to assassinate the governor, um, and but the scheme runs into a hitch, which is that because of all of these anarchist teens running around, it had been made illegal for young people to be near the governor. Um, so, <laughs> so it's like Eric Garcetti. <laughs> <laughs> so no, 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 no. Machno and his friends keep trying to find out ways to get close to the governor, and while they're scouting out, they get caught by another patrol of Cossacks, and again. Machno being Machno, when they realize they've been surrounded by Cossacks, they have another gunfight, and they manage to shoot their way out of a line of cops yet again. Uh, They escape, but not for long. Uh, Nestor and his friend are arrested at home soon later. This wound up actually being good for him, because if he'd stayed free, he would have absolutely kept trying to kill the governor, and he probably would have gotten (laughs) shot to death doing so. Instead, he just winds up in jail for a while. Um, now, this sparks okay. another crackdown on Gulyai Polyi anarchists, and the only two who escape were Antony, uh, Makhno's mentor, and Alexander, the brother of the guy who, uh, who, who died buying time for them. The police considered Makhno mm. to be the most dangerous of the young men that they'd actually caught, and they charged him with a fuckload of crimes, some of which he definitely committed. Now, all of the <laughs> incarcerated anarchists were taken to prison again while the state prepared the case against them, and this took over a year. And, like, during this period of time, like, uh, Machno spends a bunch of time in solitary confinement in, like, a cell called The Hole. Um, Like, it's a terrible place to be. He's not, it's not a nice prison. Now, in the meantime, Alexander sneaks back into Ukraine. He, like, flees to Belgium, but he immediately comes back. And he sends a letter to the head detective before he leaves Belgium, being like, Mm -hmm. you're never going to catch me. I'm, like, to the Sherlock Holmes guy, you're never going to catch me. I'm in Belgium now, motherfuckers. And then he immediately sneaks back into Ukraine with two loaded revolvers. And he sort of starts stalking the head head detective and waits until he goes into a theater. And he walks into the theater where the detective is with two loaded revolvers in his pocket. Now, he Mm -hmm. doesn't shoot him during the play because he doesn't want to hit any innocent people. But as the detective's leaving the play, he shoots him three times and kills him and then gets killed in a shootout himself. Wow. That's the end of the Sherlock Holmes guy. (laughs) I sure. Well, I mean, you know, it was he was a supernova. He lived briefly, burned brightly. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) burn brightly, King. Um So, yeah, uh, now Alexander was never able to, uh, he was trying, he was planning to spring his friends from prison after killing this detective, but obviously he doesn't get a chance to do that. But his sacrifice and his dedication to the cause inspired Nestor for the rest of his life. Machno's day in court eventually came, and he refused to beg for mercy, telling his defense lawyer, we have no intention of asking anything for this good-for-nothing czar. These rascals have sentenced us to death, so let them hang us. And of course he was sentenced. Initially to death, Machno and his comrades spent months on death row. Nestor wrote at the time, once inside these cells, one half feels that one has climbed down into the grave. One has the feeling that only one's straining fingertips are clinging to the surface. And then one thinks of all who, being yet at large, 
cling to their belief and their hopes, intent upon doing something good and useful in the struggle for a better life. Having sacrificed oneself for this future, one feels flooded by a quite profound and very heartfelt love for one's comrades in the struggle. They seem so near, so dear. One wholeheartedly hopes that they may hold on to their faith and their hopes to the very end and take their love of the oppressed and their hatred of the oppressors further. Wow. Good prison leather. He's yeah. good prison I was leather. like, he's a good fucking writer. Yeah, he's a great writer. He can make stuff that's very he's depressing very and boring sound guy. very motivating. Yeah. And he's a guy, he's he a great writer for this? a guy who never fully learns to read or write. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, I'm. I like this guy. I like a, this guy. He's a likable dude. So Nestor's nice best friend and comrade on death row was a guy named Igor Bondarenko, which is another fucking Perfect. incredible Ukrainian Perfect. name. Yeah. No notes. Now, for some reason, Igor suspected Nestor's sentence might get commuted. Uh, he claimed he had a premonition. And he basically is like, I've had this premonition that you're we're all going to get executed. You're not going to get executed. You're going to get out and you're going to lift the black, black flag of anarchy all over this land. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, my brother Nestor, you are to live. I shall surely die. I know that you will regain your freedom. Okay. And like Nestor's other friends in jail are like, that's never good. Nestor's too dumb. Like he's not smart enough to like <laughs> win. Like you're a great guy, Nestor. You're really good at shooting at the cops, but you're not smart enough to like lead a revolution. Like it couldn't be him. Um, that's, a, but, uh, that's, a, yeah. that's a that's a great way to motivate someone to just do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're negging him a little bit. Now yeah. this may or may not be may not be true. We're reliant on Nestor's account that all this happened uh, because all of his other friends get executed. So he might have made this up. I don't know. Uh, in any case, after 52 days on death row, Machno was informed that at the pleading of his mother, his sentence had been commuted to hard labor for life. He was dragged off to prison where he would spend nine years. And this actually wound up being a good thing. See, prisons in Tsarist Russia were basically the equivalent of a graduate degree for revolutionaries. Because all of the people who got, they, there were prisons just for revolutionaries. Stalin spent a bunch of time in one of these prisons. Bingo, 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 bingo. An hour, 10 minutes for Stalin. Yep. Yep. Well, okay, that's actually Stahl. pretty far. Wow. Yeah. Pretty far. Okay. Eight pretty far for talking about, you know, Ukraine. So yeah, Stalin at the same time before. is in a prison for a bunch of bank robberies. Um, and all of these prisons are the same. They're filled with like prisoners who are all revolutionaries and these massive libraries of revolutionary literature that people mm. build up over the years, that inmates build up. And so Makhno gets to read a bunch. Like he spends... He also gets horribly ill, gets pneumonia and shit, like gets permanent lung damage. So he's in the infirmary oh, a lot. And he just okay. spends all of his time reading books about like anarchist political theory. Uh, mm-hmm. The number one book that he encounters during this time is by a guy named Kropotkin. Uh, and it's a book called Mutual Aid, which is a book about Ooh. mutual aid. And he falls okay. in love with the concept. And the the book Mutual Aid never left Machno's side for the rest of his life. He wow. went in and out of the prison infirmary. Uh, you know, he was very sick all of the time. And he, he gets very frustrated at the inner prison hierarchy because there were two kinds of political prisoners in Russia. There were intellectual prisoners who were like students and sons of noblemen and stuff who got like, who found themselves drawn to left-wing politics but were also rich kids. And the guards mm-hmm. treated them very well because class was really baked into everything in Russia. And like these guys were prisoners but they were still rich. So like you shake their hands and you show them respect. And then there sure. were the poor revolutionaries like Makhno who get the shit kicked out of them, right? And Makhno yeah. noticed that these like rich intellectual revolutionaries would like shake hands with the guards and be friendly to like the same people who were beating up Makhno and his friends. And he was like, well, fuck these guys. <laughs> like, I don't care if they're saying the right shit. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's bull. Okay. Okay. So he he doesn't like he doesn't like performative politics. We he like does that not for him. Like performative politics. I he would be he would be really intense online. Sorry, I'm just thinking. He I would be was, in prison. He would not would be just, online. He would, he would he would have he'd be in prison already. Like, I was just cooking on his like. What would Nestor's online presence be like? It would be pretty no. aggressive. He would have been in prison for things he did this summer. Like yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, so 1914 came, and the prisoners were split again by those who still supported Russia in her war with Germany and the internationalists who thought that the war, World War One, was just a bunch of rich assholes making poor kids die for politics, and neither Russia or Germany were in the right. Like it was mm. just a, a dumb war, and it shouldn't be fought. Period. And mm. Machno was an internationalist. He thought it was stupid for Ukrainian peasants to die fighting German peasants on behalf of kings. He was like, okay. why, why would we do that? <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Um, and then in 1917, while Machno was still behind bars, the revolution happened. The czar's overthrown, a vaguely kind of vaguely socialist, social democratic interim government under a guy named Kerensky is formed and all the political prisoners are freed. Because there's this period before like the Bolsheviks take over where there's like a social democratic kind of like a socialist quasi thing in charge and there's social Democrats and there's Bolsheviks and there's anarchists and they're all arguing about what Russia's going to be. But during okay. this period, the czar is overthrown and uh, all political prisoners are freed, or at least a bunch of them are. And Makhno gets out of jail. Um, mm-hmm. Now, on release, he sees a doctor because he's sick as hell. And the doctor's like, you should ha- head to the Crimea, have your lungs treated like you're very ill. And Makhno's like, the only thing that's going to, like, cure my lungs is to take part in the revolution. You know, uh, his exact his exact <laughs> statement is I that. I appreciate the spirit behind that, but yeah. but I, I don't I see him hitting a wall. Yeah, I mean, the revolution was not good for my lungs, but there was less tear gas in those days. That's um, true. That's true. Different they should have been guests, counting though. their fucking blessings. Yeah. <laughs> All you had to deal with was machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this this period is taking place, uh, you know, during the anime movie Anastasia, and so. While this is yes. all going on, it's I think import, historically yeah. important to consider that the the big fat Kelsey Grammer cartoon is switching out Meg Ryan Anastasia, and uh, meanwhile Rasputin lives in hell with his bat. That's just yes, important R- Rasputin to think about. Rasputin is living in hell with a band at this point. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so he. Makhno kind of considered throwing himself into the revolution, you know, or th- throwing himself into the Moscow part of the revolution. And he spends mm-hmm. a little bit of time like with Moscow based anarchists, but he keeps getting these letters from his mom. Who's like, you know, you're out of prison. You should come see your family. And he eventually decides, all right, I'll go home and I'll do a revolution there. So mm-hmm. he's 27 years old when he finally sets foot in his hometown again for the first time in a decade or nearly a decade. His neighbors showed up in Moss to greet him, calling him a man back from the dead. Somehow, Makhno sensed that this was a moment he could use, and he started questioning his fellow villagers about their receptiveness to libertarian ideas. Now, Hmm. in modern terms, that sounds like he's trying to talk to them about how age of consent law should be lowered. But libertarian meant a different thing back then. (laughs) So, I Okay, yeah, unpack that for me. Yeah, the word libertarian started out as an anarchist term, a left-leaning term. Like, if you were a libertarian in 1917, you were a leftist. If you weren't an anarchist, you were, like, very close to one. Um, That stopped thanks to a guy 
like that stopped thanks to a dude named Murray Rothbard who brought the term libertarian into American politics in order to make it a right wing term. Um, and he, Murray okay. Rothbard is why the word libertarian now means a guy with a collection of fedoras and another collection of gas say, station katanas. I was like, wait, how did this? How did this thing I agree with become my uncle? Yeah. Uh, preaching the gospel of Gary Johnson at every available that's, opportunity. That's Murray Rothbard. He's what turns <laughs> okay. he's what turns libertarian from shooting it out with the Tsar's secret police to gas station katana collection. Um Got so it. Rothbard is basically a corporate fascist. Uh, he believed the state should be dissolved and all of its services should be provided for profit by corporations. He was trash. And he carried out a very successful campaign to convince dudes who liked guns and not being told what to do that licking the boots of billionaires was true freedom. In his book, oh, The Betrayal of the American Right, yeah, it really does. In his, in his book, The Betrayal of the American Right, Murray Rothbard work wrote, one gratifying aspect of our rise to some prominence is that for the first time in my memory, we, our side, has captured a crucial word from the enemy. Libertarians had long been simply a polite word for left-wing anarchists. That is, for mm-hmm. anti-private property anarchists, either of the communist or syndicalist variety. But now we had taken it over. <laughs> he, he's, he's very conscious about what he's done. And that's why, wow. like, like Machno considers himself a libertarian, but Machno is not what we would consider a libertarian today. Um, right. He's what some folks in Northeast Syria might consider a libertarian, but... I honestly, I still to this day have such a struggle understanding what libertarianism means, depending on who's talking to me about it. Yeah, totally. But I I grew up being told, I'm like, oh, libertarians, they're just fucking weirdos that think everyone should have a plow. That's how I, that's what I learned libertarian. That is the kind of libertarian Machno is, is like everyone should work for themselves and for their community and no one should have a boss. (laughs) That's good. But, 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 but then, yeah. Okay. Okay. I've got, I've got, I guess I have to learn more about libertarians. That doesn't sound good to say out loud. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's good, these libertarians are good to learn about because these, so modern libertarians are like, the state's bad. We shouldn't have the state telling us things. Rich people should tell us what to do. And Machno's like- The book club libertarians are good. No one. Yeah. The book club libertarians are, no one should tell you what to do. And if they tell you what to do, you should shoot them in the face. Like sick. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Machno meets all of his old friends and neighbors and he's like, have you guys heard about libertarianism? And instead of following up by again, ranting about age of consent laws, like Murray Rothbard would have done, Machno starts explaining his newly educated analysis of their situation. As he told his fellow peasants, the libertarian movement nationwide was weak and not cohesive. The social Democrats and the Bolsheviks were by far the most organized. And that was not good because they were just going to recreate some form of oppressive hierarchy that Ukrainians would have to live under. Anarchists Mm -hmm. needed to be the vanguard of mass revolution revolutionary action. And Nestor figured, why not start that in Gulyai Polyi? Now, it's a mark of how charismatic he was that basically everyone in his like hometown who turns out to see him is like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like, we just got rid of the czar. Why not make sure nobody else tells us what to do? Sure. Now, Machno has no army at this point, and his old comrades are all dead. Uh, by pure force of personality, he convinces his neighbors to establish a local peasants union with delegates to represent them. This inspired different groups within the village to organize, and soon the metal workers and the woodworkers had unions of their own. Someone suggested the peasants should pool their money to set up a contingency fund to help members of the community who had accidents or fell into misfortune. Uh, 
Now all this, this happens. Great. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very quickly too. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. And before long, the village decides to elect a chairman. And Machno tells them this is a bad idea and he doesn't want the job, but they elect him anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, he accepts the position because he's like, if I, if someone else gets this, we'll start having political parties form and then everything's going to go to shit. So I'll just take the job and not do it. Um, mm. And th- th- that's that's his mm-hmm. reasoning, at least. So within a few weeks, uh, he pushes through a vote to have the estates of all the large local landowners handed back to the peasants with no payment or compensation to the rich people. Now, this pisses nice. off the Social Democrats in the big city near Gulyaypoli, a place called Alexandrovsk. They supported a buyback policy, not wildly different from the one the serfs had been granted. The peasants, mm-hmm. though, love Nestor Makhno, and many of them decided that if anarchism meant they got to run their own lives and not have landlords, well, fuck, maybe they were anarchists. Mm-hmm. Now, it's worth noting how different Nestor's tactics were from most of the other anarchist organizers in Russia at the time. They tended to devote their efforts to creating committees and clubs and debating with one another rather than traveling out to the peasant masses and converting them by doing. Nestor couldn't stand intellectuals. He preferred to get his hands dirty and actually change things. When he was young, that change had come from, you know, shooting out with the police. Now that he was nearing 30, he was working alongside his neighbors to transform their home into something better. Makhno and his comrades, who now made up most of the town, disarmed the local militia and de-deputized the police force. They're just like, go up to the cops and Holy like, shit. you're not the police anymore. Give us your guns. <laughs> and the police go, oh no, his beard's so big. We better listen to what he says. Well, basically, so the cops that he, the cops that people don't have a problem with get to stay on as unarmed town criers. Because they're like, hey, you guys who weren't <sighs> shitty, we're, you, you don't get guns anymore, but like, you can be town criers. Like, we've got some use for you. We're not going to just murder everyone everybody that we used to have an issue with because that doesn't seem like a good a good thing to start doing Uh, and the arms of the police and the militia that are confiscated get handed to citizens who started to form what would become a democratic militia geared towards self-defense rather than you know beating people for reading the wrong books right now while all this is happening russia's still in a very bad position because this is that awkward period where they've had their They've overthrown the Tsar, and they're kind of in the start of a civil war, but they're also still in World War I fighting the Germans, even though nobody who overthrew the Tsar still wanted to really be fighting the Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, and in August of 1917, a guy named General Kornilov, who's a, an anti-Bolshevik general intent on enthrowing, overthrowing the socialist regime that had taken over from the Tsar and replacing it with you know, probably the monarchy or something again, uh, he starts like advancing on Alexandrovsk, the big, the capital city near Gulyaypolyi. And committees okay. for self-defense start being created all over Russia and Ukraine. And of course, Makhno became chairman of the Committee for Self-Defense of Gulyai Polyi. Mm-hmm. Now, his solution to stopping the counter-revolution was, quote, disarming the entire local bourgeoisie and abolishing its rights over the people's assets, estates, factories, workshops, printing works, theaters, cinemas, and other public enterprises, which oh, would shit. henceforth be placed under collective control of the workers. His defense committee is like, yeah, we'll do this. So they all vote to do this. But then General Kornilov gets defeated. And the moderate regime that was in charge of Russia and Ukraine at the time was like, hey, guys, that's too radical. You can't take all of the rich people's stuff. Like, we're Democrats. We don't want the czar, but we're not going to let you take all the rich people's stuff. So so what year are we in at this point? This is 1917. Okay, okay. A lot of shit's happening. This is starting to, like, overlap with some of the the Nabokov uh, history that I cover. Okay, cool, interesting. Yeah, Nabokov is in in all this shit. Like, he's alive for a lot of this, right? He's around. Yeah, he's around until he he ends up going to Germany uh, in, I I think, 1918. But he's around for all of this. And in this story, a bunch of Germans come here. And then Nestor has to shoot them. Yeah. Synergy. Synergy. So, uh... 
like Machno gets told by the government after this general gets defeated, like, hey, your plan to take all of the weapons and property from the rich people is too radical. And Machno's mm. like, well, fuck you. So he and all he organizes his fellow Classic. peasants to have a rent strike. Um, and so they just stop paying rent. And they're like, this is our land now. And we're going to take all of your livestock and equipment from the landlords. Oh, uh, acting on their so own. Much. I have a crush on <laughs> he, him. He's fucking, he's fucking cool. Wow. Acting on their own, the peasants of Guyai Poyi collectivized the enormous estates of the wealthy and started forming farming communes, each of around 200 people. Communal mm-hmm. life was seen by Makno as the highest form of social justice. And some landowners even came around to the idea and joined communes. Others were less than pleased with the changes and we'll talk about them later. Uh, probably most of them were less than pleased, but there were some people who were like, okay, you're taking my land and giving it to everyone else, but like, yeah, this actually is fine. Again, a minority, but it does happen. Okay. Um, and it's it's important to note that he is not like, we're going to murder the landlords. He's like, we don't need to kill them. We're just taking everything from them. And they can uh, be part of society or not if they want to, right? Okay. This is, yeah, a, yeah it's like, the, there's, there's less lenient policies than that, so... Yep, yep, especially yeah. in Russia in this period. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was say. I'm like, well, I guess, yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty chill approach. Yeah, so as 1918 rolls around, life in Gulyai Polyi has changed massively, as this write-up from an article in Libcom.org describes. Mm-hmm. In addition to his political work, he was based on a collective farm, working a type of plow called a bucher. His co-workers wow. at the time, he states, included German colonists and former landowners who had accepted the redistribution of land. Makhno's memoir describes the administration and political machinations of the Ukrainian revolution with a detail that suggests veracity. Under the direction of the Revcom, the revolutionary-like committee, he explains, Mm -hmm. ex-soldiers from the front began moving all the implements and livestock from the estates of the rich and large farms to a central holding area. The idea was not to exact revenge upon the wealthy, but to equitably distribute wealth. Landlords and wealthier farmers were, quote, left with two pairs of horses, one or two cows, depending on the size of the family, one plow, one seating machine, one mower, one winnowing machine, etc. Needless to say, this equitable redistribution was not voluntary. So again, you don't have a choice. Mm. We're taking your stuff, but we're not trying to starve your family. Like, you get as what everyone else has. Yeah, it's just healthy redistribution. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, again, was not voluntary, but was not bloody either. While there were mass killings in parts of Russia during this period of landowners, Gulyai Polyi mm-hmm. was so far quite peaceable, as were most of the surrounding areas. One contemporary newspaper article describes how the village looked during this first flowering of anarchy. It was, quote, like a painting by Repin. Exotic, gouty, unusual. The Machnavists wore colorful shirts, wide pants, and wide red belts, which reached down to the ground. All of them were armed to the teeth. The Property Brothers could <laughs> never. Okay. Yeah. Could never. Yeah. Another writer who hated Machno and what he turned Gulyai Poli into adds mm-hmm. that, quote, all night there was music and dancing mixed with the shrieks of gay women. Um, okay, no matter which way you spin it, that sounds like a fucking blast. It sounds fucking <laughs> rad, right? Yeah. Everybody's fucking strapped and dancing. Pretty sounds cool like, town. Yeah, sounds like these writers are absolute haters who don't know mm-hmm. how to have fun. Yeah, a lot of haters in the Machno story. And yeah. that is part one. Uh, part two is going to be a lot more violent, but uh, yeah. Oh, as, yeah. Well, part one, I had a blast. Is. I'm glad, yeah. Blast in part one. Yeah, part one, hard not to be on Machno's side at this, you know, uh, really most stages of this. Mm. Um, vibes are good. Vibes are good. So, Jamie, you got any things to plug before we take a quick break and then part two? 
Yeah, I got some. I got some holiday plugs. Uh, you can if you if you want a happy option, you can listen to Santa University. Woo! That uh, comes out on Christmas Eve on I think it's the Daily Zeitgeist feed. And if you want to have a, a terrible Christmas and cry, 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 you can listen to a Lolita podcast, which uh, covers a different yeah. area of the same portion of history. This um, Christmas, celebrate being separated from your family by listening to a story about a book about child molestation. Isn't that, I mean, it's at a this great point, podcast. Why not? I am caught up currently and Hell very yeah. angry that you don't have another episode for me today. There, <laughs> oh, well, you're, I mean, you're performing the hell out of Nabokov. Thank you. It is Thank you. Except for one- I pr- mispronounced that, that lion girl's name. Did. It is spelled L Y O N, like fucking it is. hell. It is, but you combined it to sound like it was like you were saying Beyonce. Like I was, it was saying Lyon, like the city in France. Sous-Lyon. Oh, okay. See, that's that's fancier. It's spelled than... the same way. <laughs> okay, I, I I I maintain she pronounced her own name wrong. Well, it's, it's episode three. So if you likely. want to hear it, <laughs> want to hear Robert absolutely demolish this poor dead woman's name. There's a place for you to go. <laughs> if you want to demolish a poor dead woman's name, follow us on Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have have a good Christmas. The episode's fucking over. Bye. Bye. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.